Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm your host, Brian Reardon, and with me is Betsy Taylor. Hi, Betsy. Hey, Brian. Uh, So, Betsy, here we are. It's uh, mid-December 2021, and I know a lot of the uh, episodes that we've been recording uh, over the last, seems like a couple of years now, have really been focused on COVID, and we thought maybe at some point we could kind of move on from that topic, but it still is dominating uh, the healthcare industry, and, and today's conversation is going to uh, address a particular area of healthcare that is, has really been uh, impacted by the pandemic. Uh, but we've got a, a new issue of health progress coming up. Uh, this winter issue is around a resilient workforce. To start the conversation, can you tell us a little bit about what's what we're, we can expect in the new issue of health progress? Absolutely. Um, we talked to a lot of people, um, uh, administrators, uh, frontline staff, and just kept hearing that it was pressures on um, on the workforce, on uh, care providers that still needed to be addressed. And uh, so, you know, we did caring for the caregiver not long ago, but we really felt like we needed to do something um, specific to resiliency. Um, you know, one thing about this pandemic is that what seemed like just some measures put into place two years ago, now there's a lot more research and findings about what works and, and what doesn't seem to be as successful. So we really dug into um, well-being and resilience and what seems to work in a healthcare environment. Yeah, there's some great articles in there. And actually, for this conversation, we're going to uh, really focus on one article. It's uh, the article Addressing the Shortage of Workers in Long-Term Care. And with us uh, for that conversation are two of the authors of that article. We have Robin Stone. She is Senior VP of Research at Leading Age. Hello, Robin. Hello. Great to be with you all today. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And and with Robin is Natasha Bryant. She's the Managing Director and Senior Research Associate, also with Leading Age. Welcome, Natasha. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so we just wanted to start with having um, one of you tell us a little bit more about Leading Age, about its work. Uh, Robin, would you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, Leading Age is um, a little over 60 years old. It is a national association of aging services providers, um, almost exclusively non not-for-profit. Uh, as of today, we have over 5,500 organizations uh, in our membership that range from uh, very high-end life plan communities, uh, the, the, the lowest end affordable senior housing properties for very low-income older adults, and everything in between, nursing homes, assisted living, adult daycare, hospice, home health, uh, health home care, um, and uh, transportation, you name it, um, we provide the full continuum of services uh, across the United States. Uh, and in addition to our national membership, we have 38 state affiliates uh, that also represent uh, our members at the state level. And we have a research institute where myself and Natasha Bryant, who you will meet shortly, are employed. Uh, our research center is called the Leading Age LTSS Center at UMass Boston. Um, we are headquartered in Washington, D.C., but we have a very close relationship with the Gerontology Institute at UMass Boston and work very closely with a group of researchers there as well. So um, we have a really uh, sort of wonderful association with strong advocacy, education department, uh, a full-blown uh, website and communications team, and uh, at the end of the day, we are trying to make aging uh, comfortable, uh, have a lot of well-being, and support older adults as they go through their lives. 
And Robin, in your description of, of the work you do, you mentioned a lot of different um, care providers. I think a lot of us may think of long-term care really as about nursing homes, but it's much more than that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I, I think it's really important for everybody to understand that when we talk about long-term care, uh, some of us actually refer to it as long-term services and supports. Um, this goes way beyond the nursing home these days. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of the focus is on keeping people in their homes and in other community-based settings for as long as possible, uh, and even moving people into the home much quicker out of hospitals and out of skilled nursing facilities when they are getting post-acute care so that they can get back home and into their communities. And so this workforce issue is not just one that is um, met by the nursing home, but it really has affected and impacted significantly the uh, development and use of home and community-based services across the country. No, and that is important to know because I think a lot of the media attention really has been around the, the COVID's impact uh, in the nursing home setting. Let me get to the article because, I again, great article, uh, and I want to uh, call out your colleague Susan Hildebrandt, who was a, uh, the third co-author uh, who's not part of this conversation, but we do want to uh, mention the fact that she participated. So in the article, um, you describe how COVID-19 really has created some some major challenges uh, in the long-term care workforce. Uh, you know, and even before the pandemic, I think there were a lot of these issues were still there. Um, can you provide a little bit of, I guess, historical perspective of some of the trends that have, have, have created these challenges over the years? Maybe that'd be a good place to start as kind of pre-COVID. This isn't, some of the stuff isn't new, but it's been maybe exacerbated by the uh, pandemic. Now, this is Natasha. Um, yes, the direct care workforce may face many challenges before the COVID-19 pandemic, and that pandemic really amplified many of these issues. It's really been an undervalued workforce. There are too few workers to really meet the needs of older adults and younger people with disabilities. There are high rates of turnover. There's also low wages and benefits. Um, in terms of the nursing home aides, they earn an average hourly wage of about $13.38, while home care and personal care aides earn even less. And also, um, some data shows that 44% live below 200% of the federal poverty level, and 42% receive some type of public assistance. We also find that this workforce does not have adequate training to really address the complex needs of the clients and residents that they're caring for. They're not a lot of career advancement opportunities. They have demanding schedules, and it's really physically and emotionally difficult work. So this has made it difficult to attract people to come work in the ages services sector, as well as to keep them in the jobs. Um, and when we look at the pandemic, can we talk a little bit about um, what are some of the, the obvious and, and less obvious impacts that, um, that the pandemics had on the ability to um, keep and attract workers into long-term care? Um, I guess I can start with that, and then Natasha, you can you can fill in. Uh, I think it depends on the part of the sector. Certainly, uh, the nursing home has received um, most of the attention, and this is where a high proportion of surges really hit, especially early on. So a lot of people were um, were getting sick, and a lot of people were dying, both residents and staff. Um, partly because of the fact that we are you are in a congregate environment where people were closer together and staff were really at risk both of getting uh, COVID themselves and then also getting COVID from the outside and bringing it into the building. So um, I think COVID and the nursing home really sort of raised the, the challenges of 
the, um, the, the impact of, of COVID on this particular population and this workforce. In the home care setting, um, the challenge was mixed. Um, one was that people were just afraid to let AIDS into the home. And so the demand, uh, at least in the beginning of the COVID epidemic, actually went down. Uh, and, you know, because people were really afraid to have anybody come into the home. And at the same time, uh, individual aides were afraid to go into the home because they didn't want to get sick and then take it back out to their own families. Um, so you have this sort of mixture of both um, fear and trepidation of working within the organizations and then also passing that on into the community and then bringing it back into the organizations. Um, also, the, the, as, as Natasha was saying, because these are low wage workers, many of them had to work multiple jobs. And we now know that having a multiplicity of jobs really had a significant impact on COVID spread. And, uh, and, and the challenge there is, is that the only way that these folks can actually live is to have multiple jobs because they are not making enough money to um, literally feed themselves and their children, pay for childcare and do the, all of the other things that they have to do as people who are often single moms in charge of their family, as well as um, bringing home the bacon. So COVID just exacerbated, as Natasha was saying, the significant challenges that we had pre-COVID and um, not only exacerbated it, but I think the one hopeful sign was it also illuminated the challenges for this workforce and began to, um, to shine a public eye on the problems. And uh, I would add that we actually did a study looking at a database, um, trying to understand the challenges, both work-related and non-work-related um, for the, the direct care workforce. And what we found is, you know, similar to what we saw prior to the pandemic, there were financial hardships, but there was also balancing um, personal needs as well as um, the demands at the work. And there was also um, concerns about work overload. But what we found in the study that what helped mitigate some of that and um, people staying on the job was really the quality of the communication from the employer regarding COVID-19, as well as preparing that workforce, that, that those folks were less likely to resign from the job. Interesting. Can I go back to the, the home care aides? Because um, you brought up a point that I don't think has gotten enough attention. That's maybe uh, a part of the long-term care piece that um, we don't think about enough, and that is... So if you were saying that uh, people may have been reluctant, A, to have home care aides come and, and care for them, and also some of the home care aides may have been reluctant to, to go in, did you see any impact on, like, readmissions to hospitals? I mean, what was what was the sort of, um, I guess, downstream effect of that? Because I, I would imagine if, if you've got less folks uh, able to provide care in the home, those people have to get care somewhere. Are they going to the emergency room as a result at a higher rate? Well, actually, the irony of all of this is that the the COVID actually stopped people from going everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what we have seen is actually a backup of people who um, were chronically ill, but were not necessarily taking as much care as they needed of their conditions. And so we're seeing now an escalation of demand in hospitals, just as we're beginning to see a new surge. And that's one of the challenges is that people who were not affected by COVID 
but who were chronically disabled and chronically ill, who may have gotten sicker mm. because they were not getting sufficient care, were also afraid to go to the emergency room or the hospital. And so they were staying at home and not dealing with their challenges much longer than they should have. And I think this sort of demonstrates um, the, the ripple effects of having both the challenge of this workforce to begin with, the COVID challenges that exacerbated the problem, and then the longer term effects, we still don't know what's happening. We're gonna, it's gonna take a long time for us to see the, the ripple effects on folks who did not necessarily have COVID, but got sicker and either needed hospitalization and got to the hospitals too late or never even made it at all. Yeah, and the thing that really uh, is startling to me is also if you look at just our aging demographics in the United States. So, you know, there's been a lot of discussion over the last couple of decades about the baby boomer generation coming to retirement age and the twilight of their life. How concerned, I guess, should we be as a society as, as all of us get older, you know, our parents, uh, in some cases our grandparents and even us as individuals, are there going to be people there to care for us when we're at that point where we need more uh, intensive care either in the home or in a, in a long-term care facility? I think that is one of the challenges is there are not enough workers um, to meet that demand for the long-term services and supports. And we also see more people want to stay in their home. And so um, the number of uh, shortages of home care and um, home health aids is going to be significant. And so I think that goes back to some of the things we highlighted in the article is really valuing this workforce and giving them the training, the career advancement opportunities and making these um, positive jobs that people are going to be attracted to and not only come into the field, but also stay. Because if we can address the retention and get people to stay in the jobs, then the constant recruitment becomes less of an issue. In the Health Progress article, you outlined some best practices and research lessons um, to address the, the workforce crisis. Um, can you talk to us, what are some of the biggest learnings from that work? Well, I, I certainly would start by saying that we know that compensation is essential, um, but much of the work that we have done also underscores, I think, what Natasha was talking about, which is we, we really have to professionalize these jobs into real occupations that are not seen as uh, early, first career, dead end jobs. These are professional occupations with significant competencies that are assigned to them that people need in order to care for very high acuity, um, often uh, cognitively impaired and significantly chronically disabled older adults and younger people with disabilities. And so how we professionalize this workforce um, is going to be substantial. And the compensation and benefits is a big piece of this. COVID has really exacerbated that because you can see that it's not just in our sector, but in all sectors, that employers are having problems finding workers. There's so much competition out there. And this sector needs to differentiate itself from others by recognizing that these are professionals uh, who need the compensation, but also need some of the other best practices that I think, um, Natasha, maybe you could talk a little bit more about what is really needed in training and career advancement that really turns these jobs from low wage jobs to actual professions. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things we did uh, several years ago is really identify the competencies and skill sets that this workforce needs um, to really fulfill their roles. And you'd really be amazed in not only the technical, but also some of the soft skills that are needed for this workforce. So one of the things we really um, advocate for is better training, not just in hours, but what is the content of that training, really understanding what are the competencies for the direct care professionals, how to really, really support the development of training and addressing those competencies and then really looking at some public and private partnerships that will invest in not only initial, but as well as specialized training that is really relevant to the skill sets they need. And as Robin mentioned, you know, how do we create career opportunities for this workforce? Some of them may want to continue to be um, CNAs and personal care and home health aides, but there are others who may want to look at other pathways. Um, so we look at both career lattices and career ladders. So career lattice, you know, are some of the condition specific specialists, like they could specialize in dementia care, medication management, behavioral health, not only giving them additional training, but having a different job description as well as increased compensation. Um, having them look at some advanced caregiving roles and really how do we integrate them into healthcare teams? Because when you think about it, these workers are really the eyes and ears of the clients. They're spending most of the times with those individuals. And in home care, they could be the only person observing that, that person. So they could really work with the healthcare team in observing any changes with the client and reporting um, that to the healthcare team so they may be able to address it. Um, and we're also thinking about alternate career pathways and career ladders. So one of the things that's typical is that a CNA will move up to an LPN or an RN and take the nursing path. But we also know not all CNAs want to pursue a nursing degree. So also providers can look at what are some other alternative opportunities beyond that traditional nursing path. So one of the things we're exploring are career pathways to a social work degree or therapy and management that really build on their relationship skills that they have in their job. No. And I would say the other key thing is really the nurse supervisor. Um, and they're really a key to whether the direct care professional will leave the organization. And a good nurse supervisor really could be a linchpin to mitigating some of these turnover challenges. So really making sure that they have the skill sets to coach and supervise their frontline staff. And in Catholic healthcare, we talk a lot about the, the calling that a lot of our uh, clinical care colleagues have that the reason they get into nursing or, or physician uh, practices is because they were they were called to serve others. Do you find of any of the, the either the long term care systems or either some of the agencies some best practices around really um, helping people realize that calling? And I think you talked about the career path thing, but are there you know a, a softer thing to sort of provide that um, I guess level of of commitment or or again sort of being part of a, a bigger thing than themselves, a, a call to a mission type of thing. And any, any sense that that's been done really well in any of the, the organizations that you've worked with? You know, I, I think Leading Age is an organization of nonprofits. So we actually have quite a few Catholic organizations that are also part of our association and many, many other um, religiously based and um, fraternal and, and organizationally based mission-driven organizations. Of all of the staff that are hired in our sector, um, I would argue that aides probably are the most folks to be following a calling. Yeah. When you talk to aides about their work, they are very rarely talking about money or even making more money. 
most of them are talking about the fact that they are there because it is a calling for them to serve the residents and the clients that they care for. So they frequently come with a calling. And I, I think that the best organizations recognize that calling, but also pair it with the moral obligation to treat these folks with respect and with high value, and therefore help them to professionalize the mission-driven orientation that they already have. So <clears throat> in some ways, um, it's almost flipping your question, which is to say that they come with a calling and need the rest of it wrapped around. Um, obviously, there are some that, that also need help in that sort of mission orientation. But quite honestly, we have done thousands of interviews of uh, frontline aides over the many, many years that we've been working in this sector. And calling is probably the major reason why they are in this work in the first place. And I would just add, um, we recently completed a study of home non-medical home care aides and did some interviews with them. And every single one of the aides said the reason that they chose this profession was because of the love of helping older adults and really being able to help them live as independently as possible. And one of the things that they really value is that relationship that they develop with the older adults, because some of them are caring for them, not only for a couple months, but sometimes they've been with the same client for more than a few years. Yeah. And I was just going to say, personally, I, I saw that when my father needed long-term care um, and just the, yeah, the, the compassion and just the, again, commitment to making sure that he was comfortable, take well taken care of. Um, you, you see that come through. So that, thank you for sharing that because I think I think that's an important point to, to underscore. That really strikes me as well. You know, I, from this conversation, I think um, so many of us who have done care providing, um, you know, I think of, I think of daycares as well. Um, when you go into these settings, um, and see uh, professionals caring for your loved ones. The notion that some of these folks are making $13 an hour is is kind of horrifying. Um, so obviously compensation should be addressed, but that's nothing new, right? We've been hearing that for years. Um, these are challenging jobs. These are difficult jobs. These are jobs where we're in many cases, asking other people to help us care for our loved ones. Uh, what needs to happen um, systemically for uh, pay at a minimum to, to increase. Um, you know, we hear about reimbursement, we hear about, you know, uh, the model's broken, but at the same time, folks doing hard work deserve a living wage. So um, what might work to help that? You know, I think it's a really difficult question and there there is not an easy answer to it. I would um, I would turn your, your audience to take a look at our website and visit our Making Care Work Pay Report that we did last year. Um, we actually did it maybe now two years ago, it was right at the beginning of COVID. Uh, and we were interested in understanding the benefits of having a living wage. And so we looked at what would happen if we paid a living wage to all aides across the country. We modeled the effects. And what we found was that not only do the aides themselves benefit because they have more money in their pockets, they're more likely to stay in their job, they're more likely to be able to buy more in their communities, but the effects are tremendous in terms of creating more job interest, uh, reducing turnover, um, building a better tax base because these folks are likely to spend their money in their own communities and that influences significantly the economic status of a community. Um, significant benefits to the providers who have a much more stable 
and, and happy and committed staff, which contributes to significant increase in productivity and um, savings to the Medicaid program as people can get off of public assistance um, if they have compensation and benefits that can help them live in a, in a, um, in a strong way. And so I think first is just having the entire country understand that the implications of paying a livable wage has benefits to all. But in order to get there, we can't just think about one model. And I know Natasha and myself and others have um, thought about what would really need to happen. Certainly, we have to see an increase in reimbursement, particularly in Medicaid, because this is a public payer that is really significantly responsible for a lot of the um, reimbursement for AIDS in this country, heavily driven by public payers. So reimbursement rates are really critical. But that's not going to solve our whole problem. We also have to look at um, how can we redistribute resources within our current system, within how payers and, and providers use these dollars. Can we use them more efficiently so that we can spread the dollars out more? Can we have um, can technology play a role in perhaps mitigating some of the need for human capital so that we can use again the aids more efficiently? Can we get society behind a livable wage, which does not occur at a federal level? This has to happen at a market level. And so it really depends on the market to drive a livable wage. And Natasha, I was thinking maybe you could just talk about some of those challenges that we met when, with when we, when we talked to um, our member in Ohio. Yeah, um, we, one of our members um, is trying to give a living wage to all the frontline staff, but it, it definitely has been a challenge while it's a mission of theirs to not only give that living wage, but they're also really looking at how do they create a positive workplace culture and advancement opportunities for those workers. Um, one of the things that a tool they've been using is MIT has a living wage calculator that actually determines the living wage at a county level. Um, but they've had to diversify their services to more private pay to bring in more revenue so they can in, then redistribute that money to their frontline staff. But I mean, in terms of their operating budget, it, you know, they don't have a lot of margins to do it. So it's really been difficult in trying to implement that program. And I know and you make a great point about it. Just It can't always be the federal government, but we have heard uh, about example, funding for home care workers in the Build Back Better legislation that the Biden administration, again, we're in December when we're having this conversation, it looks like that legislation uh, will be revisited in the new year. But can you talk a little bit about um, what you may see at a federal level, particularly with the Build Back Better legislation or other policy changes that could, again, support um, this sector of our, this critically important sector of our health care? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that's probably the most important about Build Back Better and its focus on workforce is what was originally $400 billion for expansion and support of a home and community-based workforce and now has um, moved down to about $150 billion. And we will, we will see what happens with the Build Back Better uh, bill as it moves forward through Congress. Um, but it is the first time in the history of my work, which is well over 40 years in this sector, that I have seen specific attention at the federal level to this kind of investment specifically for this workforce. And that is a milestone. 
um, that this recognition is actually there because that is not something um, that we have ever heard before. This workforce has pretty much been taken for granted. The other thing that is really critical about this is that what this, what this bill would require is that states would be eligible for federal matches if they submitted a plan that specifically outlined how they were going to spend this new money, not just on expanding services for uh, people who are getting home and community-based services, but actually how they are going to significantly improve this workforce, including compensation, including competency-based training, including career advancement. So there is specific language around the specificity with which the states need to uh, articulate how they will use the resources to build this workforce. I think there is a strong recognition that you cannot just continue to expand home and community-based services without a workforce to deliver the services. Um, I'm wondering too about what you hear from those who work in long-term care. Um, what do they view as the real rewards of their professions? And um, and are some employers doing a good job at, at sort of maximizing those things and making sure their workers feel valued and, and you know, want to come back to work every day and, and love the jobs they're doing? In the interviews that I've done with the frontline staff, I mean, it really is that relationship with the client. Um, as I mentioned, you know, in home care, for some of them, they are the only person going into that home. They realize that they may be the only human interaction that person has. And so being able to spend time with that individual, for them, it's more than just completing services. They also want to talk with the person and get to know them. Um, and you know, they really come to see them sometimes as their own family members. And so I think that is an extremely rewarding part of the job for, for many of these workers. Um, they love what they do. I think, you know, for those that are considered leaving, part of it is wages and benefits. You know, it's difficult. Some of them, if they're sick, they don't even get paid sick leave. And so they have to make a choice of, do I go see my client and maybe not be feeling well, or do I stay home and not get paid? And so that is a reality for them of the difficulty of the job, um, the low wages, um, and their love for what they do. Because many of them might be able to make more money working at McDonald's or CVS. And I think that's one of the challenges that our employers have right now is even as they're looking to increase their wages, so many other industries are also doing it that the competition is very tough. And I, I would add that I, I do think there are organizations that are doing a good job. Um, we have a number in our own association that we have identified over the years of our research where there is a tremendous investment in culture change within the organization to actually redesign jobs so that they are much more professional, to empower the frontline workforce to actually be part of significant teams uh, to think about wraparound services that are required for this workforce, even if they can't actually pay them more, they have other compensation available to them, including uh, food to address food insecurity, um, subsidized transportation. Um, increasingly, we have our members that are paying attention to mental, the mental health of this workforce. Um, COVID has really uh, highlighted what was already there before, which is that there, this is, there is significant mental strain 
not just around the work itself, but all of the challenges that many of these folks bring to the job before they even get on get on the floor or get into somebody's home. Yeah, well, and one other thing I would add is that I think there are members that are doing a very good job in terms of onboarding and really having peer mentors where workers are assigned um, to with new employees because we find a lot of that turnover is in the first 90 days. And so the peer mentors have really demonstrated to have very positive outcomes. And I think trying to support that worker in the beginning has been really beneficial. You know, this is this conversation has me really thinking about the um, conversation that's happened during the pandemic about essential workers. And what you both have, have really underscored for me is this is not only you know, essential workers, these are like super essential workers and so important, um, not only just to healthcare, but to society. So I really uh, applaud both of you for the work you're doing uh, in this area. Uh, Again, a great article. I would encourage everybody to read addressing the shortage of workers in long-term care and the uh, winter issue of health progress. Uh, I guess I would just end to see if if either of you have uh, closing comments. Uh, I think you've covered a lot of ground. This has been really illuminating, uh, but any final word? You know, I, I really appreciate your talking about this workforce as super essential. Um, it was very, very difficult in the beginning of COVID to get attention to this workforce. Essential workers were more likely to be seen in the hospital um, and, and other parts of the healthcare sector. And I think that finally individuals, families, and society are beginning to recognize the essential nature of this workforce. Um, I hope that this is not just a moment in time and that this is the beginning of uh, momentum to actually professionalize these occupations. Um, if that, that if that's one thing that I would leave people with is that these are caring jobs, but they also require significant skill sets and knowledge. And we need to think about really professionalizing this workforce so that we can actually ensure the quality of care that is delivered to the people who are most vulnerable and who we care so much for. Well, great summary. Robin Stone, Senior VP, Research for Leading Age, and Natasha Bryant, she's the Managing Director and Senior Research Associate for Leading Age. Thanks to both of you for joining us uh, for, again, this really rich conversation. So wonderful talking to both of you. Thank you. And for, thank you. Yeah, and for Betsy Taylor, again, I'm Brian Rudin. I want to thank uh, Brian at Clayton Studio for producing and engineering this episode. Uh, And this, again, has been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. Until next time, we'll talk to you.